All right, welcome back to another episode of Scuttlebutt. We're doing more Ukraine today, so no sweet horn getting the episode started. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hey. And William. Howdy. And we've got Colonel Woodbridge in the house today. Good morning, everyone. To help us kind of wrap our arms around what's going on in Ukraine. So it is Thursday. Um, Russia has a 40-mile-long convoy still slowly creeping towards Kiev. And the city in the south, Kherson. The city is Kherson. It was a dumb time for a brain fart, but the city was cursed. Just forgot the name. Mariupol or Mariupol or hasn't fallen yet. The other one has fallen. Um, so it's with a K. Yeah, the first Ukrainian major city, three hundred thousand mm-hmm. people, has fallen. So, yeah, but Mariupol is surrounded. Yeah, yeah. According to the mayor, right? Yeah, but it has been surrounded for yeah. a little then, while uh, now. As of last night, there was still massive shelling just outside Kiev. Yep, and, and Kharkiv keeps getting just hammered. Yeah. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I guess to do a quick recap, uh, last time the goal was to just to provide some context. I mean, it, it literally just kicked off, and I think we were trying to at least try to unpack, like, is there any validity historically to any of Russia's claims to the Ukraine, um, and then just provide a, a sort of a context of, what the Ukraine means to Russia, what does Russia mean to the, to Ukraine, and what, how did all of this sort of come to be? And, um, and we dug deep. We dug pretty deep. We went yeah, I mean, back. we went back to the, the Middle to Ages, the, the yeah. Rus Vikings. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important because all of those things matter, um, especially when we're talking about empires that rise and fall. Yeah. Uh, and you've got these this crossroads. I mean, I think at one point the Greeks occupied parts of the Ukraine mm-hmm. of yeah. Ukraine, right? Yeah. So I mean, we're talking tons and tons of history. But the reason we wanted to bring uh, Colonel Woodbridge in today is to give us that really the the educator's view and the military professional's view and someone who can really help dissect. What is happening? Well, not necessarily. Like we talked before the show, you can't swing a stick without hitting some retired general or former operative or European expert. So but I have, think we'll, was that we have our retired colonel. And so we've room. got yeah. our version, <laughs> but we're going to hit a different angle, I think, on that. But at least um, just take the conversation to the next point now. Yeah, so when things like this happen, in uh, in certainly in uh, legacy media. Uh, both uh, network and, and cable network, uh, the the experts, the uh, pundits, uh, really uh, enjoy a, a heyday of business, um, and so and and they all have something to offer. You know, there's always a, um, uh, a kernel of truth, a nugget of truth, uh, and another and a nugget of insight from any of these folks. Um, the only thing that kind of differentiates me, makes me any different, uh, is. Um, so I, you know, in my in my Marine Corps career, I had uh, the, uh, the good fortune to uh, to be the director of one of our PME schools that focuses a lot on operational art, on uh, critical thinking, and on military history. Um, but also, as a child of the '80s, a lot of my Marine Corps career, certainly the first third of it, was uh, completely uh, focused on uh, the Soviet Union. As the uh, the evil empire and the arch enemy of freedom and and, uh, and justice in the American way, uh, and so learning how they fight, learning their uh, tactics and operational art, uh, learning uh, 
at the tactical level how to uh, identify and defeat or destroy their vehicles, uh, meaning their equipment, because they are a large motorized, mechanized land force. Um, so, so knowing what you're looking at on the battlefield and what that means in terms of the formation that you're facing, what you can expect next, and then how to defeat that formation using terrain and, and our uh, uh, weapons advantages ate up my you know, first 10 to 12 years in the Marine Corps. Um, and for those veterans of my age, uh, this is the war that never happened. Um, this is the war that you know, we, we trained for, we prepared for, that our services invested vast amounts in our nation, invested vast amounts of money uh, into uh, preparing for, uh, being able to fight, um, and uh, ultimately won at the strategic level by outspending uh, the uh, uh, the flawed communist regime of the Soviet Union and and destroying them essentially effectively economically ideologically um, as well ideologically within yeah. within places that had been part of the larger Union of Soviet Socialist Republics mm-hmm. plural USSR republics Ukraine was one of those republics for a period of time it was the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic um, but. You mentioned the, uh, you know, the historic context. Uh, we can talk about that a little bit and, and how it's relevant to what's going on now. But uh, again, looking at this really through the lens of, uh, uh, of PME, uh, because there's a, uh, a great uh, real-life, real-time lesson going on right now. Um, and then also from the, uh, uh, what I call kind of the throwback Thursday perspective of uh, uh, the, uh, the Cold War era veteran uh, who's, uh, who's not necessarily seen this movie before because it never really played out, um, but read the script a lot yeah. Um, yeah. over and over again. Um, but I think this is a really, I mean, at least from my perspective then as a different, a different generation of retiree, um, this has been an interesting um, time for me as someone, I mean, sort of conversely, I spent almost my entire time in the Marine Corps being reacting to these sorts of international events. Something would happen and then we would go. That's not happening now and, and no one is going. And so it's very interesting to sort of, uh, and I don't want to be flippant, but it, you know, in a way be the old guys and the Muppets that are up in the bleachers now <laughs> able to watch the show unfold and then comment. Um, and so, uh, yeah, this has been strange, and I, I mean, my wife and I even talked about it a little bit. Is, is that there is a sense, there is still that sense in me to like run towards the sound of chaos, but it's not our thing anymore, and it's not. So it, there is a, there is a distance, and I'm sure, sir, like you felt some of that now as you're reflecting back the whole Throwback Thursday idea. But I just wanted to throw that perspective in: is that this is the first time that something like this has happened. And we aren't all like going to sift check out new gear. That's correct, and and uh, with the exception of um, some uh, uh, elements of the Division Ready Brigade out of Fort Bragg, um, some other uh, Joint Force logis- logisticians, logistics elements from the Defense Logistics Agency and service logisticians, um, nobody's nobody is deploying. You're right. Right. Nobody is deploying, and there's reasons for that, um, and they're very good reasons. And this sort of uh, feeds into uh, uh, 
you know, one one uh, subject area that we can look at is is looking at what's occurring right now as a as a living lesson in the nature of war as defined by uh, Karl von Clausewitz in the 18th century. Right, that is the foundational uh, theory of war, and the uh, uh, the the or the uh, description of or explanation of the nature of war uh, as Clausewitz laid it out. Um, is, is a great lens to look at what's going on right now. Um, so from, the, uh, uh, from that definition, he identifies uh, war as subject to the interplay of three elements. Uh, the first element is that of uh, subordination as an instrument of policy to reason. So war is subject to reason. There's a, there's a rational reason, a logical reason why uh, one party goes to war with another. And one party fights back against another. That's that's a reason. So, what's the reason that uh, Russia under Vladimir Putin has invaded Ukraine? Um, what is the reason that the United States and the rest of NATO are not, or the Western European countries um, and some Eastern European countries uh, and Turkey, which is both European and Middle Eastern, um, are not are not going? meaning not deploying forces and combat power in aid of Ukraine. There's a reason there. Um, so fundamentally, uh, the reason for the Russian invasion uh, in many ways boils down to uh, sort of two, two subject areas, two, two things. First is financial, is money. Um, Russia has a very uh, uh, limited and pressured economy. Um, they're essentially their sole legitimate export that brings in revenue is energy, oil, natural gas. The oil pipelines go through Ukraine, and Russia has to pay tax to Ukraine for that, that use of real estate. That reduces their net revenue from their energy sales to Western Europe and the rest of the world. Problem number one, fixed by essentially creating a, uh, another uh, uh, a client state, a puppet government that will reduce or eliminate those uh, financial drains on the export of Russian oil. Problem number one. Problem number two is intangible. It is more of a um, uh, uh, population control at home issue. Um, it is keeping the, uh, the Russian population focused on something uh, and giving them something that uh, certainly the supporters of uh, Vladimir Putin want, which is a return to the prestige of the former Soviet Union, Imperial Russia before that, and the uh, uh, sort of the cultural heritage of the Russians as the uh, 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 the hegemon of Eastern Europe. So that that's the reason. Um, what's the reason that the Ukraine is is fighting back and has not capitulated? Um, well, because they don't want to be part of Russia. They have they have uh, striven over decades to be an independent nation. They have uh, a, a somewhat more robust economy based on not just energy and natural resources, but also on, uh, on farming, on agriculture. They have always been the breadbasket of that part of the world. Quite literally, because it's wheat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, the, um, uh, and, and so now also, what is the reason why the United States and other uh, Western European and and uh, uh, and some Eastern European nations 
uh, are not committing forces to this right now. Um, the reason, the rationale, the logic, the subordination of as an instrument of policy, uh, you have to really kind of pass two tests. First, what is the strategic interest of the United States in Ukraine? And solely opposing uh, a dictator like Putin and, and that sort of uh, uh, unprovoked un, uh, aggression is not sufficient strategy in this context because the other piece to it is the cost of going to war with another uh, peer nuclear power. Um, the Viscerally, though, it seems like that should be justified. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. On but, the emotional level, right. and that, mm-hmm. that now um, gets to uh, the second element from Clausewitz's uh, 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 lens or, or explanation of the nature of war. And he defines that as the element of primordial violence, hatred, enmity, uh, and irrational forces, a natural irrational force. All right, those are the emotions at play. Um, and that certainly is playing out again live on, uh, uh, on, everyone's, uh, on everyone's media um, that the, uh, the Ukrainian people are, are not making a rational decision that, well, you know, we could probably get along with this. They are, they are fighting on a visceral, emotional level, and they are using uh, uh, their, their nationalism, uh, something that has been in uh, diminishing supply uh, internationally over the last few decades, uh, to really define their identity. Um, so there is, at all levels, that element of, of natural force that has its own uh, logic, its own uh, uh, language, and it is, uh, again, violence, hatred, and everything that comes along with that, fear, uncertainty. Um, the third element of Clausewitz's uh, uh, explanation is uh, the play of chance and probability, okay, where the, where the creative spirit of the leader, the soldier, the defender at any level, tactical, strategic, comes into play. So taking advantage of this situation as it plays out, um, looking at how this operation is playing out, you've, you've essentially got a lesson both in that nature of war at the strategic and operational and tactical levels, and you've got a lesson in uh, uh, what we learned so well in the 80s, how the then Soviets, now Russians, fight with the resources that they have. Uh, so again, if we look at the other sides of this, you know, the primordial violence, the hatred, etc., you'll see that play out, and we are seeing that play out in the tactics that the uh, Russians are employing as they operate in Ukraine. Um, indiscriminate use of area destruction weapons like tube and rocket artillery um, is incredibly violent and by nature of its, uh, of its uh, 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 indiscriminacy invariably uh, creates suffering with uh, the most vulnerable parts of the population. The civilian population who are not fighting, women, children, the elderly, the sick and infirm, that's who's going to suffer the most. And once again, a um, very clear uh, uh, illustration of the hist- an element of the historical nature of war. That nature never changes. Those elements never change. The character of war, the types of weapons you fight with, 
using other technologies to exploit other domains. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the character of war, and that constantly changes. So um, what we're seeing here is illustration in really both of those uh, elements of the theory of war, but certainly that lens of the, the unchanging nature of war is alive and well. Everything we're seeing plays into that. Um, the, uh, the wild card, that play of chance and probability, again, on clear display. I have, I have little doubt, again, based on uh, the situation in, in, uh, uh, you know, that we've seen develop over the last few months, and knowing how the, the Soviet slash Russian military fights, that what we've watched for the last week or so uh, was really the opening gambit of a of a uh, an operation. All right, the first phases, if you will, mm-hmm. you uh, execute those opening gambits for two purposes. One, you may, uh, uh, depending on the reaction of your adversary, reach early victory. They may capitulate very quickly. You may decapitate the regime by finding, fixing, and destroying uh, their leadership, whether that's an individual or an organization or a city. Um, But it also, as in a chess match, the opening is probably the most important part of the game because it sets up all subsequent moves. So what we're seeing on the ground now and in the air um, is that that opening gambit did not achieve early victory. Um, The nature of operations are they one phase or one operation ends when one of three things happen. And we haven't reached it yet. But in terms of a phase, you either have victory, you have defeat, and you fail in your attempt, or you reach some sort of stalemate, in which case you have to then create a new operational plan. Uh, so a branch plan or a sequel plan. So um, what we're seeing now as this week plays out is the early, the early victory gambit has not worked overall defeat or failure in the operation has not come into play yet. It's too soon to tell. And so what we're seeing is movement into the next phase, which can probably best be defined as uh, 20th, early 21st century uh, siege terror warfare. So uh, again, using using their strengths of uh, motorized mechanized forces, and particularly their strength in tube and rocket artillery. Um, the, and the Russians are going to do what has worked for them in the past, and it's the recent past. The reading, the study is the battles of Grozny in Chechnya. Mm-hmm. Um, they will systematically lay siege in the old, the old vernacular. They will isolate an urban area, and they will begin deliberate reduction through fire, and that's firepower and fire itself, uh, the incendiary capability of, of those weapons. And as Henry V put it during the Hundred Years' War, war without fire is like a sausage without mustard. Uh, <laughs> you, are, you are going to deliberately uh, uh, produce uh, casualties, killing civilians and military in the city indiscriminately. You are going to indiscriminately destroy structure, real estate in that city, and you're going to continue to tighten that until you get what you want, either a capitulation, a surrender of the city to you and your forces, or death of everyone who can fight in that city. All right. So it's, it is, a, it is a, a strategy of annihilation 
sitting out there. That's that's what generates the terror aspect to it, in addition to the inordinate pain, suffering, and uh, uh, ultimately uh, destruction of any military capacity. But um, only certain nations can and will do this. And I was going to yeah. add, like, one of their strengths, I think, is definitely... I don't want to call them immoral. That's probably too much of a universalist statement. But they are not hindered by their need for international validation. That's correct. That's correct. In other words, you know, putting it in, in, in very plain English, um, they don't care what people think. Right. You know, they're already, quote, unquote, the international villains. You know, you can't, you can't change that. Mm-hmm view as a as a government as a nation um, where it starts to break apart is among the Russian people themselves mm-hmm. um, however that really isn't that much of a threat to that regime and the reason being is for the better part of a century they have ample practice at controlling that population sure yeah they just have to turn the lights on in the gulags that's a do you think that I guess because this is really like for Russia's like first big war in against a like a, a near peer like threat like in the age of like social media where it, in an area of the world that like most Westerners I mean not to be like flippant like care about um, do you think how how do you think that that's changed like their approach or has it so there's a uh, a couple of things to uh, to consider there um, and I probably we probably should have said this I know you all have talked about it in, in the previous podcasts. Um, but right up front is we are limited to open source intelligence. Um, none of us here work in the intelligence community of this country. Um, we are not uh, talking about any uh, classified reporting, classified imagery. We don't have access to that. What we have access to is what everybody else has access to, what you see and hear. And our own experience. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But in terms of what's going on right now, you see and hear um, what everybody else does. Um, and, and the key points to remember there are um, there is, uh, it, it is extremely difficult to get to the truth of what's happening um, because the truth is being manipulated at the sources. So in other words, uh, uh, the, the Russians are manipulating information. They are conducting information operations or operations in the information environment to achieve their own purposes. That's misinformation and, and uh, control or, or not distribute, distributing information to their own people and to the international community. So telling, telling untruths or just not talking at all. Um, the Ukrainians are also operating in the information environment in order to build more international uh, support for their cause, uh, to create more of a heroic narrative of the defenders of their, uh, of their nation, their homeland, uh, uh, at all levels. And that serves their purpose of creating more defenders at home and hopefully creating more uh, support for them coming from, from outside Ukraine. Um, and they're using, to, to, uh, to William's question, they're using all media to do that. Both sides are. Um, who's better at it? Um, I think it would depend on who, who you really want to influence and who the audience is. Uh, the Russians are very good at using all media, again, to control their own population. When you're external and you look at their propaganda, agitprop, their, 
their uh, uh, use of information, um, it's it's pretty transparently BS. You know, you can you can really hear the echoes of uh, uh, Soviet era uh, propaganda in a lot of this. Yeah, and throw in the fact that some of their state media, like pre-written. Uh, I don't know, dispatches right. have been leaked with like European dignitaries talking about how much they fear Russia and stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty, that's classic. It yeah. is classic again out of the, uh, out of the old Soviet playbook uh, on the Ukrainian side and, and partially because of their, uh, particularly in Western Ukraine, their more uh, European Western focus and affiliations. Um, they've, They've taken this a little better at communicating to that external audience uh, and creating that narrative. Again, this heroic narrative of the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the president fighting on the streets with his people, the mayors of the city, the Klitschko brothers yeah. out there, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and others, other professional athletes, other people with uh, certainly the, uh, the means uh, to flee, the means to go elsewhere, uh, but no, they're going to stay and fight because it's their nation, that creates a very uh, sympathetic narrative. Um, and it resonates very well here in a country like the United States, where this is one of the things that we all sort of pride ourselves on is, you know, we're all men of peace until somebody comes in my yard and then, and then we're going to pick up weapons and fight. We, we, you know, that's part of our narrative, too. Well, and, we and don't fight until we're attacked. Going back to what you said earlier, though, sir, I mean, there's an entire... I mean, there's generations where this was their life since, what, 1947. Yes. This was the thing. And so I think there's definitely a galvanized spirit of, like, this is what we were talking about. I mean, remember, um, and I, I think it's been mentioned on other in other areas, but, I mean, Mitt Romney called this out in uh, 2012, and he almost got laughed off the stage. But I mean, how vindicated is he right now? No, it's it's true. And when you look at, so let's look at that history of the Cold War. Um, yes, we we prepared and we invested in multiple layers of deterrence. Uh, most significantly, we invested in nuclear deterrence, which is easy when you come right down to it. It's a math problem. It's called mutual assured destruction. Nobody wins, and as I've said earlier, the only upside is nuclear winter cancels out uh, climate change and global warming. Um, so you can you can you got that going for you. Um, however, uh, short of that, with that mutual assured destruction uh, 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 balanced equation over the top of you, we also invested and focused on conventional deterrence which at that time meant really two main things. Um, the development of conventional weapons uh, that were, although not as numerous, were more capable than the enemy's weapons. A tow missile has uh, several thousand meters more standoff than the main gun of a T-54, T-55, T-62, T-72 main battle tank. So a qualitative difference in, in combat capability and weapon systems, thing one. Thing two, actual presence. At that time, we had several hundred thousand Americans in Europe. 
stationed all over Germany, Britain, etc. So we had our we had our nuclear arsenal forward deployed as needed in the triad. We had our conventional forces forward deployed in numbers with the focus and the training on fighting that conventional fight and to a large degree creating a competition of resources on both sides. So we outspend them, they try to compete with us. They build more, we build better. They build 100 T-80 tanks, we build 10 M1A1 main battle tanks. Longer range, better defense, and we complement that with helicopters that can uh, attack helicopters that can fire tow missiles, Hellfire missiles, etc. So we qualitatively unbalance that. Um, but what really happened? We didn't. We didn't fight on the plains of, of Germany. We didn't fight the Fulda Gap. We never had to land the the uh, Norwegian Air Landed Marine Expeditionary Brigade in Norway to pull equipment out of the nuclear-proof caves and attack uh, the. Uh, the uh, uh, Russian forces from their their right flank, the northern flank of NATO. We never had a red dawn. We never had red dawn in this country. Yeah. You know, the Cubans never parachuted into Muncie. Yeah, no um, one came up through Mexico. Or Canada. Disguise. It never yeah. happened. Um, but what did happen is we wound up fighting proxy wars for the entire time. We fought um, what, what could be viewed as a proxy war or getting involved in someone else's civil war in Korea. In Vietnam, um, we fought proxy wars at the at the low level um, in Central America and Africa. Sandinistas. We fought a proxy war in Afghanistan, um, and you know again your level of involvement uh, really makes things more palatable at home in terms of public opinion, foreign policy, um, but continues that uh, constant struggle of opposition. You know, don't let them do something without us doing something to. And then back the people that are against them also. Well, and that's, and that's perhaps where this may wind up going. So, um, again, talking about sort of the phasing of what happens, um, the problem with the uh, current you know, operational design as, as we see it at this phase, this phase of isolating cities, reducing them with fire, uh, and, and essentially an attrition-based uh, operational design focused on those urban areas. Um, ultimately, that only really works if you kill everyone, as long as there are some people who are unwilling to capitulate. There is the potential for an insurgency, for a war among the people, which we have certainly dealt with as, as American forces for the better part of the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, the hopeful or the, uh, the uh, wishful thinking that we'll come in, we'll destroy these cities, we'll kill the president, we'll kill these mayors, uh, we'll, we'll deprive them of a lot of combat power, they will capitulate, we'll put in a puppet regime, does not account for the fact that some people may be dedicated enough to oppose that. That's good from the adversary perspective. But then what do they need? For any, and as any uh, unconventional warrior will tell you, um, for an insurgency to succeed, it needs that willpower amongst that population of the people who are not getting their, essentially, political goals met any other way. It requires a safe haven base of operations 
for those people to prepare and develop their their combat capabilities, and it develop and it requires external support, a safe haven where that external support can be delivered to those people who are training to use it, and then working their way back into their homeland or attacking adversary targets outside the homeland. Sometimes we call that terrorism. Sometimes we call that guerrilla warfare or insurgency. But we fought against it throughout the Cold War. And by fighting against it, you learn how to do it. So uh, we have had, uh, in the past, a very robust unconventional warfare capability in the combination of our uh, uh, special operations forces and uh, uh, parts of our Central Intelligence Agency, uh, the operations directorate of the Central Intelligence Agency, um, are the experts in doing that, and it's their responsibility. Again, open source media, what it is right now, um, uh, I, can't, I can't confirm or, or uh, uh, you know, say categorically that this sort of thing is going on right now. Um, but the plans and capabilities are certainly there. Um, yeah, there's a playbook getting dusted off. Exactly. And so of those requirements, from what we see, we appear to have uh, a dedicated uh, uh, adversary population within the Ukrainian people, rallying around their president, their mayors. They're, they're willing to fight. Um, they will continue to be willing to fight. Stipulate that. Uh, there are available to them safe havens in other nations, Poland, Hungary, Romania. Can we, the West, the NATO allies, flow uh, lethal aid or combat power to those safe haven nations? Of course we can. So that playbook is, is there. Um, and if this does continue to drag on, that's the way to do this. That's what we did in Afghanistan to a lesser degree. That's what we did in Angola um, it's, uh, and, and in Central America. Iran-Iraq war. Helped to, uh, helped to fund other right. operations, but uh, we did support Iraq against Iran, um, again, because of the, uh, uh, the, what had occurred during the Iranian Revolution. Um, so that's, that's, another, that's another discussion day. Um, so I guess the question then is, is that, um, you know, as we're dusting off playbooks and we're looking at, at this, at this sort of thing, um, where, I guess, thinking of Kilcullen's uh, view of insurgency and counterinsurgency, as we, as we dust off our playbooks, Russia starts to dust off theirs. Yes. Yes. Grozny had the benefit for, from the Russian standpoint of being within their borders. Mm -hmm. This is now a sovereign nation, and they're going to try to attempt that. I, I see that as going very badly for them. And, I mean, you talk about if, like anybody who may be on the fence about whether they're going to participate right. in an insurgency. You do something like Grozny, all of a sudden you have a bunch of people who are in. Exactly. And you have exactly. to do it 13 times in Ukraine, whereas in Grozny it was – one big Under city. heavy, yeah. heavy yes. sanctions, yeah. yes, in a much smaller, yeah. much smaller theater. Um, they never had to do it in Crimea, or uh, uh, or the Don uh, the Don River estuary, again because that's eastern Ukraine, and you have a very sympathetic population there, who probably focuses more towards Russia. So yeah, the the, the calculus is on their side. Exactly, for that one. exactly. Um, but what you're talking about that uh, that uh, 
perception of uh, Russian actions backfiring. Uh, again, many good historical examples of that. Uh, the French in Algeria, uh, the French fighting a, uh, uh, a, a Muslim insurgency in Algeria. Again, very public uh, overreaction and brutality galvanizes the opposition, makes them more inclined to oppose you. Uh, and that could very well play out here. Uh, but again, also dial back the Soviets are you know, quite literally wrote the book on insurgency. And in doing so, they learn counterinsurgency. They know how to control uh, uh, that movement. And, and the level of brutality and the level of infiltration required. So how do you break up that sort of insurgency? You put your people in among the insurgents. It's an intelligence fight. And so they are uh, very inclined to do that. They've got a capability in the form of Ukrainians themselves who align with Russia, who are willing to become those uh, double agents, if you will, traitors or infiltrators. Uh, and you, you start to take down the insurgency from the inside that way, something we were never able to do. We were never able to do it in Vietnam. We were certainly not able to do it in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, the other thing to kind of just keep measure in here is since the 1970s, um, our national capabilities for unconventional warfare have been drastically reduced. So we may have the playbook, but we don't necessarily have the volume, the number of players anymore. Um, and so that's a, uh, you know, our... Uh, that because was like like certain agencies have been mothballed or rolled into a larger conglomerate and and like the uh, and the focus of those agencies has moved from from direct action uh, both in terms of intelligence collection and uh, uh, unconventional warfare operations to uh, imagery analysis and mm. and uh, uh, global situational awareness um, so you know a shift in focus and again that happened. Uh, largely during the 1970s as a result of some extra legal things going on and also just a, a shifting in, uh, in the national will. Yeah, I guess now, a good point uh, for anybody who's interested in this perspective uh, is Charlie Wilson's war. Yes. That's yes. unbelievable. Well, and, and then the entire, the entire story arc, mm -hmm. if you will, of U.S. Soviet and U.S. involvement in Afghanistan uh, and by extension, Pakistan and, and other areas of the Middle East. Uh, following the origins of that story arc, using the lens of the nature of war, there's a lot to be learned there. Uh, you know, the, the rationale behind Brezhnev's decision to go into Afghanistan and to essentially annex that country, put in a puppet regime, um, were valid at the time. He was looking at two things, externally to what just occurred in the Islamic Revolution in Iran, in some people's, in Charlie Wilson's war, they refer to that as the crazies taking over. Um, and then looking internally at Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, the Muslim minority Soviet Socialist Republics of the old USSR. And the concern of that type of uh, Islamic uh, extremism working its, way, working its way back into the Soviet Union. Oh, by the way. Chechnya, Dagestan, Ossetia, much of the Caucasus also, with the exception of, of Georgia and Armenia, 
subject to that same type of ideological infiltration. That's one of the other things to remember about the, the Soviet legacy here. Ideology is everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, fundamentally, being a true believer in the workers' paradise and the communist, communist cause created the strength of the Soviet Union. That really isn't there anymore. It's more national Russianness now, and that may not go as far. Um, it's, it's easy to re-educate someone into a true communist. It's very hard to re-educate someone into being a true Russian, because you either are or you aren't. Um, and where, where Putin has done some, some brilliant information operations is in leveraging uh, kind of the historical, cultural uh, um, roots of Russian greatness. Uh, oddly enough, going furthest back to a hero who was in the Middle Ages a Ukrainian king and prince um, uh, in, in the 1200s, the late 1200s, uh, the prince of uh, Novgorod, Alexander Nevsky, defended the motherland against, in this case, German and Lithuanian invaders coming from the West. Was it Khrushchev Ukrainian? Yeah, he was. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's why he was so, you know, that's why he looked so well fed. He grew <laughs> up in the breadbasket. Um, but he was one of the ones who survived. But I guess to that point, though, sir, in, in, in mentioning, you know, influences of the West. So the information or the gray zone, is, I, I guess part of this is that we're sort of like NFL scouts on the sidelines with our clipboards. We're watching gray zone operations. Play That's right. Out. Absolutely. And so the, one of the things is we're looking at that is. Well, that, we're watching gray zone operations play out, but we are also watching a very classic 20th, early 21st century war of fire and maneuver play out. Yeah. Um, my, my point there is uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, in the way the Russians are operating on the ground, um, what happens when we're not there. All right. So my example, my specific example is everyone talks about, Nick mentioned, a 40-mile 40 uh, mile long column of Russian uh, armor and mechanized forces working their way very deliberately along essentially one axis of advance, one road, several, you know, several linear roads. Taking their time. Taking their time. All right. From, from the American way of war perspective, um, that is the best thing in the world for the United mm-hmm. States Air Force, United States Navy and Marine Corps attack aviation, fixed wing and rotor wing attack aviation. That is a 40-mile-long linear target if yeah. you have the assets in the air if you can control the air. Um, and so we've, we've seen that play out in the past. In the first Gulf War north of Kuwait City, the Republican Guard fleeing back to Iraq created the linear target that later was called the Highway of Death. Right? And, and that is a real thing. When you fight, when we fight in that environment, you never see those tactics being used. It's just not safe. You can't, you can't mass along a linear target like that, um, not when you're fighting the Americans. Well, they know they're not fighting the Americans, so there it is. They play that out. So that, in that regard, yes, this is gray zone, but this is also classic conventional ground warfare. Um, the use of artillery and, and rocket artillery against urban targets, against other targets, that's, that's classic Soviet fighting. Uh, when we learned this back in the 80s, they find you with their 
motorized mobile reconnaissance. They fix you in place with mechanized and armored formations, and then they kill you with artillery and finish you off with more armor and more mechanized formations because they have that ability to attack in depth. That's what they're doing right now. So you, you spoke a lot on like the Russian like strategies and tactics. Uh, do you, what, what can you speak from, I guess, like so far we've seen, uh, I mean, obviously in spite of the information we're getting, like the Ukrainian response to that? So what you see uh, is a, um, a Russian, again, the U Ukrainians were an Eastern Bloc country. They're using essentially uh, uh, Russian defensive tactics. Um, they're falling back into built-up areas because of the cost calculus involved with fighting in a built-up area. They're sort of conducting Stalingrad in reverse. All right? So in World War II, the, the Russians, the Soviets, uh, effectively uh, uh, defended their nation by, by investing the city of Stalingrad, forcing the Germans and some Ukrainians who were German sympathizers uh, to, to invest the combat power of trying to take that city and fight building by building, house by house, room by room, and ultimately spend themselves spend and exhaust themselves and reach that culminating point where they can no longer generate combat power. And then the chance and probability kicks in, Russian winter. And so between those two things, you essentially annihilated entire army groups of the, of the German army uh, that spent themselves. Culminating point is an important uh, uh, doctrinal, theoretical uh, uh, factor to to put into play here. Um, when the, the Russians have not reached a culminating point yet, certainly not strategically or operationally. Some tactical units have, running out of fuel, you need to be refueled. Stuff's you breaking. don't, when, when it's things breaking maintenance-wise, exactly running out of ammunition, potentially. Um, that, that's the wrong way to do it. You want to uh, pause your, oper your, your tactical operations prior to reaching that culminating point. If you extend past the culminating point, you're extremely vulnerable because you're essentially fixed in place and limited to what you're doing. So the, um, the Ukrainians know that, and I think they're also, uh, again, probably more effectively employing operations in the information environment in that effort to um, gain additional international legitimacy and international support for what's going on. Legitimacy, we're all with you. Hey, you know, even our own members of Congress and professional athletes are wearing, you know, yellow and blue. And, yeah, we're standing with the Ukrainian people. Those memes started, like, within 24 hours on, on Facebook. So, yeah, that's easy. Providing actual lethal aid and support on the ground is much harder. You know, and, and supposedly there are some groups out there, you know, old veterans going to get together and we're going to go and help them and fight. There's a long history of that in this country, too. Um, we, had, we had private citizens going to fight in the Spanish, Spanish Civil War between World War I and World War II, um, actually fighting on the communist side in that civil war uh, to oppose the fascists. Uh, so, you know, there is, there's history of that, but in the big picture, does that turn the tide? No, no. Um, it can send a very clear strategic message, both domestically and internationally. Um, but in terms of international law and the legality of combatants, 
um, they are not legal combatants. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be uh, willing to risk that. Yeah. And so I guess kind of circling back around the beginning, talking about how what actually could make an impact. Uh, Russia is chased the dragon for oil, but that's the one thing we haven't sanctioned yet. So, like, what who, kind of... Who is dependent on that oil? Well, we're, Western we're, Europe. Yeah. And to a degree, we buy Russian oil here mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, some would argue that we have taken our most important uh, strategic piece off the chessboard uh, voluntarily um, by uh, uh, essentially walking away from being a net exporter of energy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, again, there are domestic political reasons for that. You know, what, what end of the spectrum you're on determines whether you think those are good reasons or not. But in terms of this conflict and the strategic impact of that resource, it's a terrible move. Yeah, because for us, though, the impact isn't particularly high. Like, the global market affects us, obviously. Correct. We're like 98% Western Correct. Hemisphere That's right. oil. But so. for Western Europe, yeah. for our NATO allies. Yeah, that can become a problem. Right. And so, you know, another, another key point there, and we didn't, we didn't really talk or delve into this that much, but, um, you, you know, nations can be support each other, nations can be uh, uh, friendly, can be, al oh, allied, wait a minute, you're only allied when there is a treaty signed, right? You, you're, you're ally, that is almost a, in, under international law, that is a binding agreement of mutual something, mutual defense in the case of NATO. So all the member nations of NATO agree, among other things, that an attack on one is an attack on all. Um, that has played out in the last 10, 20 years in different ways. NATO viewed 9-11 as an attack on the United States, a NATO member, and thus NATO forces, NATO member nations, provided forces for operations in Afghanistan. That is a, a follow-through of the NATO Mutual Defense Treaty. On the other hand, Turkey is a NATO member, part of that alliance. Turkey has had uh, attacks on their sovereign territory and their forces as both a spillover of the war in Syria and uh, an insurgency amongst uh, the Kurds of their population who also live in Syria, bases, havens in Afghanistan, Syria, and elsewhere. Um, and NATO has done nothing to assist Turkey with that attack. So... Some would say that the, you know, the uh, the alliance sort of uh, is subject to interpretation at times, depending on who's being attacked. Uh, but ultimately, that's the that's the backbone of Europe. Um, you know, the the old saying about NATO is it has it has, you know, really three purposes: keep America involved in Europe, keep Russia out of Europe, and keep the Germans down. So they don't do it again. That's worked brilliantly, brilliantly over the last 60, 70 years. In recent years, it's had some, some pulling and tugging at it. Interestingly, the other area that competes in some ways or is another, another uh, friction point with NATO is the European Union. Mm -hmm. The EU is an economic body. It grew out of uh, uh, resourcing and trade agreements so that all the member nations would pay the same prices for coal and iron and 
then it became transportation. If you got to move your coal and iron, you don't want to have to pay tolls going through other people's countries. So the Schengen Agreement allows movement amongst the EU nations. It had a it had a tangent called the Eurozone, where we're going to have common currency in some areas. So not all members of the EU are in the Eurozone and vice versa, and not all members of the EU are in NATO and vice versa. Then in the early 2000s, the EU started to dip its toe into common defense and created comp- competition for things like the NATO Ready Brigades. So if I'm one country, if I'm a small country, I have limited combat power, limited forces. Do I keep those forces on a high readiness level to provide to the NATO alliance? Or do I keep them to provide to the EU? Tough question for smaller countries uh, and even bigger ones. So interesting that what has uh, uh, President Zelensky done? So, so NATO, NATO, NATO is the is the tripwire that Russia has said we will not accept the Ukraine as part of NATO, but he's petitioning to become part of the EU. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had their candidacy status confirmed what yesterday? Two yes, days ago? Yep, yes, yeah. So, so okay, you know, President Putin, Vladimir, the other Vladimir, we're we're not going near your your, you know, tripwire, your your line in the sand about NATO, but we're part of the EU, which certainly has economic and and social benefits and may actually have a military benefit as well. Oh, by the way, that's one of the reasons why Putin very publicly uh, makes statements about the readiness of his nuclear forces. And I I wanted to get on that. uh, I I know really appreciate you taking the time here, sir. um, We were talking earlier uh, before the show started about trigger lines and tyrants and conventional deterrence. And so, as you just mentioned, like we all understand nukes and mutual assured destruction. And, and when we think nukes as sort of a public consciousness, we think huge missiles that fly up into space and then come down, it's a flash, and then we're all, you know, whoever's left is battling with cockroaches for survival. <laughs> um, but there's a smaller version of that, and the thing that keeps people, tyrants and despots and crazy people from executing those things is, is that there's this conventional deterrence and they feel I've got enough distance between my, the loss of my worldview and these tactical nukes that I can play the long game, whether financially or conventionally, I can stall this thing out and maintain my power without having to go. Now, if we start talking culminating points, we start talking about being embedded in a long war that they can't sustain. We're talking about heavy, heavy sanctions. We have a now a, a, not just a gap, but a chasm between conventional deterrence and nuclear, the, the action of nuclear threat. As much as we want to cheer on the Ukrainians and that that resolution and fight for liberty and all of the things that make what they're doing and Zelensky and the Klitschko brothers, I mean, all of the things and the 80,000 or so people that are going back into the Ukraine, like all of the wonderful things about this, there is an aspect of it where we need to be careful because if Putin reaches his 
culminating point, and he is vulnerable and a caged animal, and he we clearly see he's crazy enough. He does if he doesn't feel like he has another tool in his kit, he's gonna use the wrecking ball to to hit the nail into the board. If we take away all of the hammers, that's a, that's a a legitimate concern. Um, the flip side of that is the and and as a matter of uh, of defense policy, stated public defense policy for generation, um, there's sort of no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon. Yes, of course there is in terms of technical uh, uh, specifications, smaller uh, uh, payload, the, the lower your yield. Yes, lower lower yeah. yield, um, neutron. Radiation, so you know something that does not destroy. It doesn't have an enormous explosive effect. The blast effect is reduced. The radiation effect is increased uh, by new, new or, uh, uh, certain technology in in neutron weapons. Um, battlefield nukes, again, throwback Thursday. Nuclear artillery shells for 155 millimeter howitzers that every army and marine artillery officer learns how to uh, employ and adjust fire and where the release authority rests for those weapons. Um, the reality of it is, as stated policy, is that that use of a tactical nuclear weapon like that immediately brings strategic nuclear response. So would you ever use a tactical... If you're going to get a strategic nuclear response, do a strategic attack and you trigger the, nu- the mutual assured destruction piece, mm. at least within certain cities and you know, the, the East Coast, uh, uh, other, other you know, key uh, facilities in the United States and in the Soviet Union. And the whole triad kicks in. So um, recognizing what's at stake there may be the control on what you're describing. Um, so, uh, but, but again, go back to that lens. Those are all rational. Right. Bo- both the... the um, the use of the wrecking ball on the nail, that's a rational decision. The response to that wrecking ball from, from other nuclear powers is a reasoned, rational decision. That's not the sole driver in the nature of war. There's also that element of hatred and enmity and, and, fear. and fear and irrational natural forces. And there's that probability, chance, unpredictability. So you cannot, you cannot make a, and this uh, is a lesson learned over and over again in warfare at all levels. You can never make or should never make decisions based on your assessment or understanding of a given party's intentions. You need to make those decisions based on their capabilities, their demonstrated, known capabilities and so like Maya Angelou said when someone shows you who they are believe them exactly that's exactly right and um, you know to a to a degree uh, all of this uh, uh, supposition in the media about Putin's mental state and does he have terminal cancer and all of these sorts of things no take that that all goes to intentions don't do that don't do that don't do that. It makes no sense, and it distracts from the real issues. Okay, what are the capabilities, and then what is the rational decision involved? 
What is the element of, of enmity and hatred involved? And can we even predict things given the element of uncertainty involved? So that's, that's the game we're playing right now. Um, when you do that, you want, you want really good players involved. And because some of our uh, uh, strategic uh, decision-making and warfighting capabilities have atrophied, certainly over 20 years of fighting small wars among the people, counterinsurgency, irregular warfare, uh, 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 countering extremism, whatever you want to call it, um, we don't necessarily have the right players, the right skill sets available. It's not going to be as easy as getting a Dick Vermeil out of uh, retirement. That's right. You know, you can't, can't call in the left-hander. <laughs> yeah, I guess to that point then, too, there's a lot more players than just Ukraine and Russia here, too, because we got Lukashenko, and who knows what he's going to be up to. He wants to put nukes in Belarus again. Yes. Um, Poland is right there. They're, they're increasing the size of their army in response to... So there's an, inter there's an interesting point. So Poland is... Uh, uh, we have uh, agreed to, uh, to sell, to deliver to Poland um, M1A3 main battle tanks, um, the state-of-the-art. Um, the Poles, and they're actually getting what they want. Those are the Marine Corps' old tanks mm -hmm. that were uh, 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 transferred to the Army. Um, and now through uh, foreign military sales, the Army is selling those to Poland. Highly capable vehicle, highly capable weapon system. So, yeah. yes, and, Poland's and, and a player. Romania is a player. We have forces on the ground in Romania. We have the Black Sea Rotation Force. We have Marines that train in Romania routinely. Um, you have other... Uh, NATO members and non-NATO members, some of the EU, some not. All of those, but one of the key players that we really haven't talked about um, is Germany. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, is, it is largely Germany's dependence on Russian energy that uh, is the limiting factor on what NATO is, is considering right now. Plus, they've seen this, they have seen this movie before. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess it goes to your uh, initial uh, point when we first started was that opening gambit. Gambit, depending on how, th and, and obviously you know speculation world according to Vic here, but had Kiev fallen in those first forty-eight <coughs> to ninety-six hours of this thing, Poland is definitely putting on their brown pants yes. because the next phase then is a surge somewhere else because we know that russia is not no one wants to get into regime change these right. days yeah. and the uh, I, I would submit that even even more so than poland um the uh, lithuania, estonia, that's correct yeah. the baltics uh, latvia lithuania and estonia finland uh, and too. to yeah. a degree finland um but but particularly uh, uh latvia the southern baltics are uh access to uh, the North Sea. All right. So mm -hmm. again, in terms of a strategic asset, that now gives uh, another place for the Russian fleet to uh, refuel, rearm, and and uh, uh, and use as a base of operations that they used to have. Again, this goes back to that throwback Thursday piece. In the days of the Soviet Union, those were Soviet socialist republics that the Red Navy uh, were were using on a regular basis. The Soviet Union collapses, they become independent nations, and now if you want to use our port, you've got to pay all these 
fees, and oh, by the way, maybe we don't want you here. We're not willing to sign that sort of, pe- uh, of treaty. So they try and shove everything into Kaliningrad. Right. Yeah. And depending on the, on the Baltic you're talking about, uh, again, it isn't one size fits all. Uh, you know, you have, you have parts of the Baltics that align with Europe and Germany. You have parts that want to align really with Scandinavia and, and Finland, sort of a neutrality thing. And then you have Baltics that align with the Soviet or with uh, Russia. So, again, one size doesn't fit all there. Mm-hmm. Well, sir, thank you so yeah. much. This is awesome. So um, it, it's a mess, and if yeah. it's not a mess, it, it'll work until the real mess happens, which may be next week. Oh, yeah, it's a mess, may be, yeah. and it can get messier. Yeah, yeah. we, uh, we yeah. may have to uh, regroup on this uh, at some point and account for uh, uh, current events yeah. as they occur. This is, mm-hmm. the, this is the, uh, uh, the challenge, but also the real value of uh, studying a, uh, a, a real-world, real-time lesson in the theory and nature of war as it occurs. Yeah. I think this is so. This is such a good exercise. I think for us, and especially for the uh, association, as we talk PME, because okay. everything post Long War has been Asia, 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 island chain, island chain, island chain, and you know there have been a few outliers who said, and I Marinus is one of them, has been, hey, just in case you guys aren't paying attention, like there's an, an entire other region of the world where things are not so. Exactly. Exactly. Before we go, sir, um, you mentioned last week uh, some recommended reading uh, to us. What would you recommend for all our young Marines or people interested in this to learn and study more to brush up on this part of the world? Um, Did you all make the recommendation of uh, Bloodlands? Yeah, I just just got it. I think that's one of the um, uh, primary books to to read to understand the recent history of uh, of the region. all of Eastern Europe and its relationship with Russia focuses on the period really from the end of the Russian Revolution, the 1920s, up through uh, uh, the 1960s, 70s, uh, and uh, particularly focusing on Ukraine uh, and what what occurred slash what was done to Ukraine. And there's uh, there's you know still sort of widespread debate about it. What what we know is that it was a Uh, one of the largest scale famines in the history of the world, whether it was entirely deliberate, uh, as in a genocide, or somewhat accidental, as in bad uh, collective socialist farming policies, the aggregate effect was the same. And uh, those memories are alive and well uh, in Ukraine and and in parts of Russia as well. Um, How the Ukraine behaved during World War II, again, significant Portions of the population, mostly from the western part of the country, formed their own Nazi parties and their own SS units and became a, uh, uh, a franchise, if you will, of, uh, of Hitler's uh, forces uh, and fought against their countrymen and conducted uh, 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 pogroms in the country. Um, another great book to read and also a, a pretty decent movie is Defiance. Um, talking specifically yeah. about um, uh, uh, Jewish partisans uh, during uh, the uh, the Holocaust in Ukraine, um, you know, best uh, best lesson there is 
ultimately, the uh, Ukrainian and German Nazis uh, uh, discovered that they, uh, they, they, they messed around with the wrong group of Jews in Eastern Europe uh, because culturally they were the smugglers, criminal element, and an extremely violent organized crime of, of rural Ukraine at that point. And uh, the, uh, uh, the story of the, uh, the, they're named after the two brothers that founded the group, the Bielski Partisans, is, uh, is a lesson in insurgency. Uh, in how it's done. And so that, that cultural memory is there in Ukraine also, even though the Bielskis left after the communists took over and actually lived in Brooklyn, New York, where I'm from. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so those, those are, two, uh, are two good books. And um, the, um, uh, th there's a lot of other writing out there. There's a lot of other books on the subject. Um, but uh, again, to understand sort of the history, I'd go there. Um, and I mentioned uh, I mentioned the medieval piece to this. Uh, so another another interesting little uh, 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 lens to look through or data point um, at the uh, at the beginning of World War II, when the Germans first violated their mutual neutrality treaty with Stalin's Russia and invaded Russia, um, the Soviet propaganda machine went to work, and among other things created a, uh, a popular movie based on the story of the uh, Kievan prince Alexander Nevsky and his defense of Russia against the German and Lithuanian knights and the battle on Lake Prepus called the Battle on the Ice where the heavy German cavalry cracked through the ice and the, and the lightly armored Russian peasant soldiers. Okay, so there's Ukrainian history that is, is uh, appropriated by Soviet Russia as a rallying propaganda tool to get uh, uh, the Russians, the Russian people and the Russian military inspired to fight against the Germans invading Russia again. Uh, and it was phenomenally uh, effective. Uh, and it's a, it's a great old movie to watch, old black and white, subtitled, obviously it's in Russian, and the score uh, the music written by uh, 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 Sergei, Sergei Prokofiev, the great classical Russian composer. It is real propaganda. You'll come out of that movie wanting to fight for Mother Russia. So. All right. Well, with that, we'll uh, wrap it up here. Uh, again, all of our opinions are just our opinions, and uh, our facts need to be checked where possible. Uh, we as are much as you can in the yep. open source. Yeah, yeah. So we are dealing with every same information that everybody else is. So and if you do, or if you are in the know, please write in, yeah. or uh, leave us a yeah. message, yeah. or if you're in the area, come on our show. Swag. Which segues nicely. We had uh, uh, Chief Warrant Officer Ted Tomaski reach out to us. Uh, he was in Crimea in 2006. It's an interesting story. We'll get that out for you guys later on in the week, next week maybe. And uh, yeah, that was that, really cool to hear yeah, his perspective. That was awesome. So. Yeah. We will catch everybody uh, on the flip. Catch you later. Bye. Bye.